I'm here with Brian McLaren, and we are today going to talk about his new book. It's called Faith After Doubt, Why Your Beliefs Stop Working and What to Do About It. So as usual, it's a great um, <laughs> quick description of the book. And, um, you know, also uh, Brian and I were talking about how um, at one of the Writing for Your Life conferences, he talked about this topic and the four stages that he describes in this book. So I'm so glad that, you know, he's turned it into a book. Um, let me just give her the brief blurb that's uh, on the website about it. Um, it says 65 million adults in the United States have dropped out of active church attendance, and about 2.7 million more are leaving every year. Faith after doubt is for the millions of people around the world who feel that their faith is falling apart. Using his own story and the stories of a diverse group of struggling believers, Brian McLaren, a former pastor and now author, speaker, and activist, shows how old assumptions are being challenged in nearly every area of human life, not just theology and spirituality. It's 2020, isn't it? <laughs> he proposes a four-stage model of faith development in which questions and doubts are not the enemy of faith, but rather a portal to a more mature and fruitful kind of faith. The four stages, simplicity, complexity, perplexity, and harmony, offer a path forward that can help sincere and thoughtful people leave behind unnecessary baggage and intensify their commitment to what matters most. Most, How well said. I mean, uh, as I mentioned to Brian a minute ago, that just kind of describes my own faith journey. He's going to talk about it in a little bit more detail. But Brian, thank you so much for being here. And thank you so much for writing this book. Oh, thanks. Thanks, uh, Brian. Yeah, you know, uh, this is, uh, these four stages uh, I've been working with for over 20 years. Um, and when you have a, a kind of framework that you develop over time, you can keep tweaking it. Um, and when something is time-tested for over 20 years, uh, then, you know, you feel like, okay, this is safe to share. Uh, and I, I'm glad that I got a chance to, to frame these four stages of faith development in, uh, around the, the problem of doubt. Because, um, you know, a lot of times people won't pick up a book that's just interesting or helpful. What makes them want to reach for a book is a problem. And, and this, the intensity and the struggle and the pain of doubt for so many people, uh, it, it's, it's like a toothache, you know. It doesn't go away, and you need you need some help. Well, I know you know Frederick Buechner was the first one that really planted the seed for me about how important doubt really is. Yes, and how positive it is, not yes. not so negative. Yes, and so you know I'm so glad that you're drilling down into that concept. Um, you know, for the benefit of people that you know have been questioning it, I think, and questioning themselves and questioning their faith. Wasn't it Fred Bigner who said that doubt is the ants in the pants of faith? Exactly. <laughs> it keeps you from being stagnant or smug or complacent. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. I mean, very unforgettable phrase. Exactly. Very insightful in a typical Bigner, you know, way. That's just a <laughs> one-liner that hits home, right? <laughs> that's right. So, how did this book ultimately come about? Then. Yeah. Well, uh, I. You know, I went through deep periods of doubt myself, uh, and in some ways, if it hadn't been for doubt, I think I would have, I, my faith would have been like an on-switch, off-switch. I grew up in a very conservative, you know, people would now call it conservative evangelical or fundamentalist uh, background, 
And we were given such a rigid package of faith. A, a, I call it a system of beliefs. That's what faith was. And if you could make maybe the tiniest little tweak, you could maybe unscrew one little element of your eschatology module and then screw in something else, you know. But it was a very tight package. And so if you were to question anything, you pretty much would throw out the whole thing. Um, but what I came to understand is, no, actually, there are deeper things that are going on when we say that we have faith than just the level of beliefs. Faith is actually a way of orienting ourselves toward the world. Our, our mutual uh, friend Richard Rohr says, uh, among many other things, faith is a way we orient ourselves to the unknown. Mm. Um, oh, and, and it's a way that we balance what we know and what we don't know. And it's more than that, too. But in my own life, uh, when I gave myself permission to doubt, to say, if there really is a God, then God would, you know, I wasn't equipped with a, with a brain to not use it, uh, that it's okay to ask questions. Any God worth believing would want me to be honest. When I had permission to doubt, that, that allowed me to, stay, to keep my faith. Otherwise, I would have just had to walk away. Then I was a pastor, as you know, for 24 years, and I had so many people through the years come to me with this or that question, this or that doubt, and I, I began to see a kind of pattern. And actually, that pattern I'd been exposed to, not through religion, but through my previous career as a college English teacher, and as part of my training, uh, 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 for kind of free, free training for college teachers, I was exposed to a human developmental theorist named William Perry who proposed a nine-stage process of adolescent intellectual development. And I remember when I went to that training session, I thought, this is what's going on in my own faith, hmm. that, that, the, that part of my development as a human being is to watch my faith develop just as I watch my intellectual capacities develop. So all of that paid a played a part in in me um, coming up with this simple four-stage schema and, and over the years in trying to help people not be alone in their doubts. Um, I think I say it this way in the book, it's hard enough to have doubts, but it's almost impossible to have doubts and have to pretend you don't. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah. yeah. So maybe you could just drill down a little bit on the four different stages for sure. so people have a good understanding of what we're talking about yeah. in those four terms. Well, the first thing I always like to say, Brian, is that most people, when you think of stages, you think like of a line, you know, stage one to stage two to stage three. Um, I, I'd like to suggest throw out the line and instead think of rings on a tree. Hmm. So a lot of people don't know this, but when a tree grows, it doesn't just grow taller. It really grows fatter, meaning it adds a new layer. And so each of those rings is a layer. And and the each new ring embraces the smaller rings. So if we think of it that way, that we start with, a, with an innermost ring that I call the ring of simplicity. And simplicity is super oriented toward authority figures because when you're a little kid, you, you, don't, you don't know. You don't know how little you know. You don't know how much you know. All you know is that grown-ups know more than you do. <laughs> And so you trust, the, the grown-ups you trust, you come to them with a million questions and you believe what they tell you. 
Um, and one of the things that some of those grown-ups tell you is here are some other grown-ups you can trust. So you develop this group of people. I just call them the authorities. And the authorities tell you what, how things are. And so faith in that earliest stage is the simple matter of believing what authority figures tell you. Um, now, a lot of us, I, I think this is, I think we've all met people, we know this is true, even if it's not true for us. A lot of people stay in that stage of simplicity for their whole lives. Nothing ever pushes them out of it. It works for them. Some people are actually trapped in that stage of simplicity for their whole lives because the authority figures who tell them the way things are frighten them and make threats against them that tell them, and you're never allowed to ask any questions or accept any answers that aren't the ones that I give you. Um, you know, sometimes we call those groups cults, but there are a lot of people who, who live in those highly authoritarian settings and they're trapped in simplicity. But more and more of us, by the time we reach puberty, start moving into the second ring. We expand out from that first ring. We don't throw it away. We still respect authority figures. Um, and, but then we learn to start asking questions for our own, doing our own research, uh, thinking for ourselves. And I call that second stage complexity. Um, and, and in many ways, if simplicity um, is, is about, it's kind of absolutist. Everything's simple, right, wrong, us, them, in, out, good, evil, safe, dangerous, all those dualisms. Um, when we move to complexity, it's, everything's no longer black and white. It's now shades of gray. And in complexity, we could say it's very pragmatic because now I'm interested in wanting to figure it out on my own. <laughs> um, it, 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 we move from dependence on authority figures to independence for our own critical thinking. And a lot of people stay in stage two their whole lives. Uh, and in fact, you could say a lot of our churches are stage one churches. And if you don't fit in, you have to find a new church. Um, we have more and more stage two churches, and they tend to be very pragmatic. Here are the steps so you can do this. Here are the, you know, the, the, the guidelines for doing this or that. That's stage two. A lot of people stay there their whole lives. Some people, though, are pushed out of stage two into a, this larger ring that I call perplexity. And perplexity uh, involves us going back and saying, you know all those easy answers they told me in stage one? A lot of them are false. I was misled or I was only given part of the story. And you know a lot of the, all those easy steps I was given in stage two, a lot of those were oversimplified, they were wrong. And now we become highly critical and, and we, we want to see through the agendas people had when they told us those easy steps. And, and we become highly suspicious. And a lot of people stay in stage three their whole lives. And then I think there's a stage four. Um, so simplicity, complexity, perplexity that I call harmony. And harmony involves learning to, in some ways, integrate those first three stages and to do it in a charitable and loving way. And that's this larger framework. Uh, my, my friend Richard Rohr calls this the non-dual thinking stage, where, where we're able to see the appropriateness of things. And, and we're able to see the falsity of things, the problems of things, without hating them and just rejecting them entirely with that kind of on-off switch. So those are the four stages. I, I also explain in the book that I think there's a stage zero. Um, that's the stage before simplicity that, that we all start in as infants. 
And if we're in enough pain or if we're in enough in a desperate enough situation, we actually can revert to that stage zero. And all we care about then is survival. We don't care about rules. We don't care about authority figures. We just care about survival. Mm. And then the last thing that I try to explain in the book is that I think we go through these four stages. They have a certain logic to them. Obviously, life is messy. Nobody, nothing is as simple as these four stages, right? But I think what happens is if you stay in stage four long enough, it becomes your new simplicity. And kind of like then you repeat, and now that's mm-hmm. your complexity. And then you move to a new complexity and a new perplexity. And that seems to be a pattern that often we go through. We go through that circle, that circuit many times in our lives. So I need to ask you um, about, uh, I'll call it falling back. Yes. Because I feel that's a pull for me. Yes. Unfortunately. Yes. So, you know, I've, as I mentioned, I kind of feel like I've gone through some of these different stages and evolution in my own life. And, you know, I want to approach things from a perspective of harmony. Yes. But there's the other part of me that's so pissed off about so many <laughs> different things. Yes. You know, that, that have happened in the last four years. Yes, I, I identify, believe me. <laughs> that, I, that I, you know, I have this constant tug that I have to fight about falling back into something. I don't know if it's perplexity or what, but yeah. how, 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 what do you, do you talk about that at all? Yeah, uh, yeah I do. And, and so, Brian, I, I think here's the difference. When, uh, as a, when you're a stage four person, you still have all those stage one skills <laughs> and reactions. So all the t- you have the strengths, but you also have the weaknesses. So all of us can revert. But here's the thing. When you're a stage one person, you actually have never experienced anything beyond it. Mm-hmm. So if you want to think of it this way, you, you gain a lot as you go along, but you don't lose the weaknesses and the temptations. Uh, you're all, the only advantage you have now is that you you know there are other options, right? But yeah, I think regressions happen. I think they happen to us as individuals. Frankly, I think they happen to us as religions. I think they happen to us as countries. I think countries can regress. And, um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think we, we're flexible. We, we, we expand and we can contract again. So a minute ago, you used the parallel between doubt and questions. Yes. Right. And, and, and like from an engineering perspective, from a business perspective, you know, oftentimes questions are like really, really valuable. Yes. Right. And, and providing yes. insight into a very complex situation. So and in and, and, and a little blurb, even it talks about how this concept, this framework that you've got is applicable beyond theology and spirituality. Yes. And it's so clearly applicable, I believe you know, in, in, in business and in, in, in probably many other fields. Yes. So you, you might remember, uh, in fact, it's one of those moments, it's indelible in my own memory when the space shuttle Challenger blew up. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And, and then there was a lot of discussion about how failures happen. And, and they talked about the problem of loyalty, that when you're loyal to an organization, there's pressure on you. There's a peer pressure. Don't bring up problems. Um, and, and so 
loyalty seems like a virtue, right? I'm loyal to my organization. But then when loyalty means I'm not allowed to raise a question, I'm not allowed to bring up a problem, I'm not allowed to raise a concern, otherwise I'll be seen as negative. So then the whole organization suppresses questions, suppresses problems, suppresses concerns, and that can lead to great effectiveness in the short run, and it can also lead to ca catastrophic failure. Uh, and, uh, and in business, it's the same way. You know, there's a certain like can-do spirit in business. We got to just do this. Don't ask questions. We got to, you know, but man, people better ask questions. I, I thought of you know, a more recent catastrophe because I live on the Gulf Coast. This is, you know, very real to me. But remember the uh, big oil spill we had, mm. uh, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And, and there had to be engineers going along in that process who thought, this isn't safe. This could fail. If this fails, it's catastrophic. Um, do we really have a plan for this? Well, in a certain sense, that's a kind of doubt. I'm doubting the program. And you can see how doubt, the doubt can save lives <laughs> if it's brought up in the right way and dealt with in the right way. And a failure to doubt can cost lives. And, and look, it happens in religion. So Christians, a lot of people are brought up as, as I was as a Christian, they're taught, oh, Muslims are like this. Jews are like this. Atheists are like this. Gay people are like this. Or it happens racially. White people make assumptions. Every authority figure they know tells them, our race is like this. Other races are like that. And you just realize, if it's not for doubt, people stay stuck in their prejudice. But I mean, anybody that's led a variety of businesses or organizations, you know, over any, you know, considerable amount of time has to have learned a lesson about how valuable questions are, you know, and how valuable it is to doubt, you know, the assumptions that, you know, maybe <clears throat> hiding just, as you said, catastrophic issues. I, I mean, you look at what's happened in the Catholic Church, right? There's deep faith faith that we have a hierarchy, that we have a pope and cardinals, and there's this thing called the magisterium, and, and God is with us, and all the rest. And then some, you know, somebody sees a cover-up of, of an abuse by a priest, and, and now they think, I'm not allowed to take this seriously. I'm not allowed to bring this up. Uh, God is in control. And, and so a little statement of faith papers over something, and dozens, hundreds more children are abused. So, so this thing of, in, in the world of religion, it, we, we, we aren't as comfortable with questions maybe as we are in business or, or science. But you know what? These problems even exist in business and science. Oh, absolutely. No, I've seen them too. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, no, no question about that. But um, I guess I just, well, whatever. The, bo the, the bottom line hits you harder in business. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just that one of these things where once you see it proven, you know, yes. the, 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 the problems associated with the earlier stages that you're talking about and, and yes. not being able to question in, 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 in that kind of context, yes. you know, you just realize that questions are incredibly important. You know, this is one of our real struggles in religion. And one of the parts of the book that, you know, you know this because you work so closely with writers and you write. Um, when you have the luxury of spending a year or two years just marinating in a question, marinating in a problem, marinating in a subject, 
And when you write as I do, I, I try to write a very fast first draft, and then I just go back and I throw things out left and right, and I do so much revision. Um, and very often, I haven't even figured out what needs to be said until that first draft is through, and then I throw a third of it out and start over again, you know. But, um, but when you have a chance to grapple with this deeply, uh, what I came to realize in writing this book is that uh, that there are social dimensions of doubt in religion that occur because this doesn't have to be the case, but in a lot of Christianity is the case. We define unity based on beliefs. And in fact, you are a Christian based on your assent to certain beliefs. So that way, if you question some of those beliefs, it's not just a matter of you're asking a question. It's a matter of whether you still even belong. And you're seen as an enemy and a because betrayer. Because an identity question. It's an identity question. And, you know, business has a certain, exa- uh, certain advantage in the sense that if you're in a business, you know we're in this for profit. We're in this to make money. We have to, you know, we have to pay our bills and so on. And so if my asking of questions helps us make more money and helps us avoid needless costs and risks, my questions become an asset, but there are a lot of religious settings yeah, where, yeah. where nobody understands it yet. And it's one of the things I hope my book will do, obviously for people who doubt, but I also hope it will help religious leaders to understand that I think the Christian faith will be healthier if we stop defining unity based on beliefs that, it, that make it uh, impermissible to ask questions. And instead we find another center for our unity yeah 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 wow interesting (laughs) so um so i have to ask the question you know what are you going to do next what are you working on in terms of follow-on to to this or to other projects well this book faith after doubt was really conceived as a, a pair of books and so um uh the first book is about the problem of doubt in general um the second book is really about the problem of christian identity Mm. um, So it's called, uh, Do I Stay Christian? Mm. And um, so that's what I'm actually writing right now. It really builds on Faith After Doubt. But the way I've structured that book, uh, Brian, is the first third of the book is no. And I try to give all the best reasons I can think of to not stay Christian. (laughs) Do I stay Christian? No. Um, Then the next third is yes. And um, I have to take into account the first no part of the book and say, are there any good reasons to stay Christian And I, uh, in the second part of the book? And then the th- third part of the book is, is built around the word how, and that's the part I'm working on now. If we face all the problems in the Christian faith, and then we face the, the reasons to stay Christian, in light, even with our eyes wide open to those problems, how are we going to do it without repeating the problems? So that's, that's the shape of the book. Very cool. Well, I love the practicality of that third segment. Yeah, um, uh, it's... Um, what do we do about it, right? You know, if we have yeah. a certain set of understandings, what do we do about it? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I think a lot of people are going to feel by the time they get through the first section of the book, they're going to feel like, yeah, forget it. No way do I ever want to say <laughs> Christian. And I, I'm, I actually think that's good because... If we don't take the problems in Christianity seriously, and, and there are serious problems, if we don't take those problems seriously, we will replicate them. If we too easily give ourselves permission 
to sweep those under the rug, so to speak, or tolerate them. The, the cost is super high, both for us, but also for the rest of the world. So, so that's what I'm trying to work. Uh, that's what I'm trying to work with. And of course, by helping people in faith after doubt to think about that faith actually grows from simplicity to complexity to perplexity to harmony. If we help people see that that's a process, it will help them see that the, the entire Christian faith has to go through a similar kind of process. Very cool. Very, very interesting. I'm so glad that, uh, you know, you're doing that second book in addition to this one. So this Faith After Doubt is available January 5th, I think it is. Is that Yes, that's right. Yeah. Available for pre-order now. Yes. And in fact, you know, we realized that some people might want to give it away as a Christmas gift. So we made an arrangement. If people go to the website, they'll see all this. But we made an arrangement with two um, local independent booksellers. Um, where I signed, you know, I don't know, a thousand book plates or something. Um, and uh, so if people buy from those two independent booksellers, um, when they send the book, they'll send it with a book plate with my signature on it. So they can send it a sort of signed book for uh, as a Christmas gift. So. Excellent. Excellent. That's wonderful. It'll, it'll, it'll arrive a week or two late, but uh, hopefully it'll be, it'll, it'll be worth the wait. <laughs> you can uh, give your... Um recipient gift recipient a little coupon you know to show them that it's coming in fact when they if they ordered from those two booksellers um they will get a little letter that they that sort of that there you, they go. you can wrap them. you can wrap the letter and put that under <laughs> the tree right. or in the stocking and then you know there'll be something to look forward to soon after i hope i hope that's how it will go <laughs> and so it's available from st martin's yes and uh, the second book i assume is also yes that's right Wonderful. Well, Brian, uh, thank you again for spending some time with us to, you know, go through all of this. And thank you again for writing these incredible books. You know, you've done so much to help other people. And I think this is right in that same stream. Well, this feels like probably the book that I I was trying to write when I first began, and I didn't realize how I wasn't ready to do it yet. And so now it feels like, yeah, this is the right time. So I hope this will, this, this is the book that I wish I could have go back in a time machine and hand to me when I was 23 or 26. And yeah. Well, as you said earlier, you know, 20 years worth of uh, stewing on it and refining it and questioning, you know, the whole thing um, that has to have added a lot to it. I, I hope so. In terms of so. its depth, in terms of its resilience. And <laughs> so, well, anyway, Brian, thanks again so much. And um, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Keep up the great work, Brian. See you soon. All right.